World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the 200th episode of The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Chinese and American firms are both trying to bring driverless cars to the mass market. On much of the core technology, American companies would seem to be in the lead. But with a little help from its 5G network, China might already be winning the race. And have you noticed that your email program suggests replies that are eerily appropriate? Computer-generated text is getting more savvy all the time. But don't relax your writing muscles too much. The bots are still terrible at crafting arguments. First up, though. As the impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump continues, the start of the trial of his longtime associate is likely to provide him with more discomfort. Roger Stone is a flamboyant and controversial political strategist, known for using aggressive tactics to discredit opposing candidates. He's worked as a campaign advisor to a number of Republican presidents, including Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. Mr. Stone formed a relationship with the current president four decades ago. He first advised Mr. Trump to run for the White House in 1988. Well, all the polls are showing that I win or do very well in this election. I'm not happy with what's happening in the country. That friendship, mentorship even, was the focus of a 2017 Netflix documentary called Get Me Roger Stone. Those who say I have no soul, those who say I have no principles, are losers. Those are bitter losers. Mr. Stone's exact role in Mr. Trump's 2016 campaign has long been a source of speculation in particular over his contact with WikiLeaks and the release of material about presidential contender Hillary Clinton. In January this year, Mr. Stone was indicted by Robert Mueller, the special counsel, on seven counts. They include obstructing an official proceeding, witness tampering, and making false statements to Congress about his communication with WikiLeaks and the Trump campaign. I will plead not guilty to these charges. I will defeat them in court. CNN had been so sure Mr. Stone's indictment was coming that the network had a camera team outside his house when the FBI turned up for a dramatic early morning arrest. This is what the first sounds that Roger Stone woke up to this morning was the FBI pounding on his door and shouting. FBI, open the door! John Fasman, our Washington correspondent, had a similar hunch to CNN's, but he made his move a month earlier. I reached out to Roger Stone because I had a sense that his indictment was possibly coming, and I wanted to hear from him before he went undercover, as it were. So I wrote him an email. I said I would be down in Fort Lauderdale one weekend soon. If he's free for lunch, I'd love to take him out. And uh, and he accepted. How was the lunch? The lunch was a blast. He is an entertaining storyteller. He's charming. He's funny. He has a ton of stories. It was a two-hour lunch that felt very fast. Okay, before we get into the lunchtime conversation, uh, let's go through what the charges are against him. 
he is facing seven charges. Five of them are making false statements to congressional investigators. One of them is obstructing a government proceeding, and one of them is witness tampering. Uh, I believe he tried to get Randy Credico, who is a longtime friend of his, a New York radio show host, and a sort of as outrageous on the left as, as Stone is on the right. He tried to induce Credico into not testifying, and I think he threatened to kidnap Randy Credico's dog. Roger Stone has pled not guilty to all of those charges. How, how is the dog? I think the dog's fine. Credico appeared. He did testify. He showed up with his dog. He was photographed with the dog outside the Capitol. It's a, I think the dog is a, I, it's a little white dog named Bianca. Last I heard, Bianca was fine. Okay. All these charges that Mr. Stone faces have to do with Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian interference. Is that right? Yes. Roger Stone presented himself to the Trump campaign as a conduit to WikiLeaks. He said he was in touch with Julian Assange. Now, after the investigation started... He said that, in fact, he wasn't, that it was all bluff and posture and hype, and that all he had been doing is monitoring WikiLeaks' Twitter feed. Robert Mueller's indictment says that that's not true and that he was actually in touch through a cutout with WikiLeaks. And, and what are the stakes here? What would happen to Mr. Stone if he were found guilty? Uh, these are serious charges, and he faces serious prison time if he goes down for these. He's 67 years old, and that's uh, facing years in prison at that age is no picnic. You say he was a charming guy with lots of stories. I mean, the public persona of Roger Stone is a, a kind of canny, often cutting political operative. Did, did you get a sense from him about how he operates when you spoke to him? Well, he is a political operative. The stories that I liked most, he got a start in Connecticut politics. He's from Norwalk, Connecticut, which is, which is down along the coast. And he said for his, his first campaign, this was for a Connecticut state senator, uh, he would wait on the train platform. It's a commuter town into New York, Norwalk is. And he would be there in the morning with flyers for his candidate and fresh coffee. And then he would be there in the evening with flyers for his candidate and freshly mixed martinis. It was such a, a, a charming portrayal of a bygone world of political campaigning. But that's where he got to start. But, I mean, this, this kind of charming and gracious stuff is not really what he's been known for in, in more recent decades. No, no, he's a dirty trickster. And he's the first one to admit that he's a dirty trickster. Uh, I think he honed those skills working for Nixon's campaign, which is famous for using those sorts of tricks. That's his specialty. That's the sort of thing he does. And he's he's really unabashed about it. So his his ties then to, to President Trump, I mean, how far back do they go? So he's known Donald Trump for 40 years. Their connection goes back to Ronald Reagan's 1980 campaign in New York. Uh, Stone arranged a visit to New Hampshire by Donald Trump in 1988, when he was initially flirting with running for president. He was connected with the campaigns in, in, in 96 and 2000, I think it was, when, when Trump sought the Reform Party nomination. And his connection to the, to the 2016 campaign starts quite early on, too. So he has known Trump for a, for a very long time. But on the other hand, the investigation, the Mueller report and so on, is somewhat by now in the, in the rearview mirror. I mean, how much do you think Mr. Trump and his team will be, will be watching this trial? How much do you think could change the story as we now know it, reopen that chapter? I mean, I think they would. They are going to be watching it very, very closely. It's true that the Mueller report is done, but there was a lot of, of Stone activity in the Mueller report that was redacted, what I assume was Roger Stone activity that was redacted, and it may well come out at this trial. I think there are a couple of things that, that the Trump campaign will be worried about. Number one, the trial should show whether Roger Stone was, in fact, talking to WikiLeaks and whether when he said he wasn't, that it was all bluff and posture, that that was, that was in fact, the, the bluff. And number two is whether Donald Trump lied to Robert Mueller. You'll remember that 
Trump did not sit down for a verbal interview with Robert Mueller. He answered some written questions. And in answer to one of those questions, he said that he didn't recall discussing WikiLeaks with Roger Stone. You may get some testimony from Steve Bannon and Rick Gates about that. And so if I were at the Trump camp, I would be watching this trial very nervously. And what about Mr. Stone himself? When you met him, what did he say about the possibility that he would get caught up in Mr. Mueller's investigation? Well, I asked him exactly that question at lunch, and he said it's a, it's a line that I still remember. He said, I don't worry, I make other people worry. Whether he would repeat that line today as his trial looms, I don't know, but it was a, it was a wonderful bit of bluster at the time. Um, about the substance of the charges, he had a very, I want to get this quote exactly right from the transcript. What he said is, there is no evidence or proof, and no one can honestly say that I had advance notice of the source or the content or the exact release date of the WikiLeaks material, either stolen or I should say allegedly stolen and allegedly hacked. To my mind, that is a very lawyerly non-denial denial. denial. Um, He also said during our lunch that, you know, his testimony before the House Intelligence Committee was basically truthful and he may have said some things that were wrong, but they were immaterial and inconsequential. And the indictment against him alleges that's not the case, that his false statements were both consequential and material. Well, regardless of what happens with this trial and, and presuming Mr. Stone is available to take lunch dates, would you take one with him? In a heartbeat. Anytime. Why is that? Because he has he has good stories and he has a, a central role in this in this drama that's unfolding right now. He has insight. He has history to talk about. He's an interesting conversationalist. John, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Last week, China's three major mobile carriers switched on their 5G networks. It was another milestone in the technological arms race between China and America. China wasn't the first country to launch 5G, but its network is the world's largest. For consumers, 5G promises ultra-fast connections, but it could also be an enabling technology for autonomous vehicles, helping to guide cars through the streets. Companies in both countries have been working to bring driverless cars to the mass market. Technologically, China lags behind America in the race. But as the industry faces all kinds of business model challenges, Chinese firms could emerge with a different kind of edge. We've all been expecting autonomous vehicles to arrive kind of any day. That's Hal Hodson, our Asia technology correspondent. People like Elon Musk have been promising full autonomy arriving over the last five years. Cumulative data is increasing exponentially. The software is getting better at an exponential rate. I feel very confident predicting autonomous robo-taxis for Tesla next year. It's still nowhere near arriving, mainly because it's just a very, very difficult problem to drive on chaotic streets. And it also just looks like there might not be as much money available in running a driverless car network as it first appeared. And so now we're seeing a bunch of different solutions emerge to try and get around that. 
Well, what do you mean? Why is it not a straightforwardly big money-spinning industry as you see it? So a good place to start to explain this is with Uber. And the reasons, really, that Uber became so astronomically valuable before its IPO was this vision of replacing all of its drivers with software that drove the cars instead. And the reason that that was so valuable is that about 60% of the cost of taking an Uber is paid directly to drivers. Uber, the company, doesn't see any of that. And so the idea was that if you could just get rid of the drivers, replace them all with software, all of that money would just go into the pockets of whatever companies was running these businesses. The problem with that is that it doesn't really work unless you have a monopoly. Because as soon as there's any competition, they're going to cut prices, cut them and cut them and cut them until all of that 60 cent is gone. Because there's not really any difference between one autonomous car ride and another. And so for a consumer, they're just going to take the cheapest one. And you're going to be left supporting this heavy infrastructure that is full of supercomputers and expensive artificial intelligence. And so the big vision that drove so much investment into autonomous cars over the last five years, the reality is a lot more complicated than that. So it's that supercomputing ability and artificial intelligence in the like that makes this such an expensive thing to do in the first place? Yeah, so right now a driverless car like the ones that, say, Waymo has, which is a subsidiary of Google's holding company Alphabet, each one of those cars is hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you need to have a completely different business model if you want to take into account the upfront costs of installing a big fleet of cars that can drive people around with no drivers. Currently, it's kind of like you need a special handmade boutique Google supercomputer to drive you around, and that's going to be expensive. You need to be making predictions about the movement of everything on a city street as you drive along it. And the algorithms that are currently used to do that, they're still not clever enough that they don't need masses of power. And even with the supercomputers today, they're currently not safe enough. But surely this is the central challenge of the industry to get to a standard of safety that will be you know, good for regulators and passengers. How do we get between here and there? You need to do a lot of testing and the idea is that the more you drive, the more data you get and the better your cars become. The difficulty with this is that we've definitely seen progress, but um, it doesn't look like these things are ready to roll out today. And one of the alternative suggestions is that instead of relying on having everything in the car, all the sensors, all the computation, you might be able to move some of that onto the streets that you're trying to drive through. Why is that any different? Imagine how much easier driving would be if instead of just looking out of your own eyes, you're able to get information from the entire street ahead of you. The other thing is if you have sensors and computers on the street in the environment, the cars themselves don't need to be as technologically sophisticated and all the cars can share infrastructure that helps them do the processing and that brings the overall cost down. If that makes so much sense, then why isn't that everyone's business model? The reason it's not everybody's business model, frankly, is because in America, it's very difficult to install infrastructure. You know, America is a country that can't even build a high-speed train network in California. And so this dichotomy that American companies like Waymo are the most technologically advanced in terms of the cars and the software in the cars, and yet they are very unlikely to be able to rely on infrastructure in order to roll out driverless cars, this gap is where China has an advantage. Because if there's one thing China and the Chinese government is really good at doing, it's building infrastructure and building whatever is needed wherever it's needed. And so Chinese companies are in fact trying exactly this? 
Yeah, when you talk to driverless car people in China, you're also talking about the phone network. So China Mobile has an entire prong of their 5G deployment, which is about guiding autonomous cars through the streets. Huawei are building cell towers for 5G networks, which will talk to driverless cars and guide them along the road. And these kinds of developments are happening in China in a way that they're not happening in the United States. So do you think that infrastructure consideration will give China an edge in the autonomous vehicles race? I think it will. Uh, it's currently quite a contentious question. But um, China does have a couple of other advantages. One is the Chinese government is spending a lot of money on the rollout of 5G. It's subsidizing startups that build the computational elements that you need. And the other thing that the Chinese government can do is they can just designate a lane in a road as an autonomous car lane. If you can sort of build a fence around the lane and make rules saying no humans are allowed to go on here, no other cars are allowed to go on here, that makes everything so much more simple because you no longer have this chaotic environment. And so do you think that those advantages in some mean that China will make autonomous vehicles a viable industry sooner than America will? Yeah. So in some ways, autonomous vehicles already are a viable industry in China. There are quite a few autonomous vehicle companies there that are selling much simpler vehicles to do much simpler tasks already. So this is things like street sweeping robots. About cars that move humans around, I think that the distribution of responsibilities and the involvement of the state means that the business model for autonomous cars that move humans around is a little bit more feasible because it means that all that big upfront cost, it's split between huge companies and the Chinese government. One company doesn't have to take so much risk. And so I think it's possible that we will see widespread deployment of autonomous vehicles happening in China. I don't know about first because Waymo is pretty close, but maybe first at big scales in China. But if a stumbling block in the model that America is pursuing is simply that the computational power and the cheapness of that computational power is the holdup, I mean, the history of technology suggests those things advance faster than you expect. Can you imagine a situation where essentially that problem gets solved because the technology advances quick enough to obviate the need for all that infrastructural stuff? Yes, it's absolutely too soon to say. It's more that that is an alternative that a lot of people are thinking about now. In terms of the cost coming down on the components you need to make a driverless car, that's what technology relies on to get to market. But it's difficult because it's a chicken and egg problem, right? So right now you have this expensive technology that can just about do it, but it's not quite safe enough to be deployed in the market. But you need it to be deployed in the market to reach the scale where you have like mass production kicking in and everything gets cheaper because you're making more of it. Right now you're not making that many autonomous car components. And so they're expensive. But regardless of who is likely to win the race in the longer run, autonomous cars are not going to be here as soon as perhaps we've been promised all this time. Yeah, that's right. And one autonomous car industry exec I spoke to roughs out that so far humanity as a whole has spent more on the development of autonomous cars than America spent to put humans on the moon in the 1960s. So um, currently it's, it's a lot of cash for not much result, but slowly but surely. Hal, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jason. used to be pretty amazing that your phone could guess what word you were starting to type, or correct one that you mistyped. Now, email programs can suggest words, phrases, even whole sentences, 
They might even sound like your own writing. That's just the most visible part of a push by authors of programs to engineer authors of prose. Computers have gotten very good at handling lots of elements of human language. Lane Green writes Johnson, our column on language. And now they seem to be conquering another bastion, which is writing itself. Uh, computers trained on large bodies of actual text can now be seeded with a paragraph or two, and they'll start writing on their own, producing what is, to all appearances, real English. And it's quite remarkable. What, what are some remarkable examples of, of, of this stuff in action? So in a recent issue of The New Yorker, John Seabrook had this system called GPT-2 write a bit of his own article. Now, this was a system that had not only learned what English looks like from about 40 gigabytes worth of text on the Internet, but was also further refined with some text from The New Yorker's back archives itself so that it produced not only text, but text that looked weirdly like The New Yorker. In another experiment that we did in-house, we had an AI, the same system, write an essay on the subject of what can be done about climate change and sustainable energy. And to a large extent, once again, it sounded to all the world like actual English, or I should say it reads like actual English. But on closer inspection, you can see lots of problems. Uh, it's very cliche-ridden, as you'd imagine, because it was trained on already existing text. But a lot of it also didn't seem to make sense. There were also weird non-sequiturs and phrasings that didn't quite uh, fit into the context. So at a deep level, what, what's, what's going on in the cogs of the machinery here? This is, this is just kind of making sentences that sound like sentences that came before? Yes. Essentially, what's going on is that these systems are trained on already existing bodies of text. So, for example, if it's looked at a bunch of emails that start with happy, it can guess that the next word is very likely to be birthday and is unlikely to be sort of tadpole. GPT-2 is a lot more sophisticated. It, it creates longer strings of text, and it even will create several sentences on the same subject in a row that look like they really cohere. They'll seem to stay on a topic. So it can make a plausible-sounding sentence. It can string a few of those together into a plausible-sounding paragraph. It's, it's not that big a step from there to a plausible-sounding, I don't know, graduate essay. Well, there are a couple things that it can't do. First of all, by learning from past writing, it can't be creative in its own style. It will, by its training, do what it's already been taught to do. So it's never going to come up with this sort of exuberant new style of a Joyce or something like that. But the reason it's not going to start churning out graduate essays is that what it can't do is really go for any distance. If you give it 20 sentences and ask it to generate number 21, that number 21 will look eerily like it belonged where it goes. But by the time we get to sentence number 25, it stops cohering. These sentences are grammatical. They, they're, stylistically, they, they look really incredibly plausible. But what's really interesting is they don't make sense. If you, if you read on long enough, you'll quickly get into kind of idea salad rather than word salad. And so how to escape that problem? I mean, and surely that's just an intersection with a different part of artificial intelligence research to kind of bring the sense and the, and the sort of linguistic staying power. Yeah, there are a couple of different domains at play here, and you'd have to integrate them all. One is that AIs can also know lots of individual things about the world. If you ask uh, Alexa, you know, uh, what's Tom Cruise's birthday, it'll give you an answer because that's a single uh, closed domain answer and there's really no ambiguity about it. But stringing lots of facts together in a sort of messier situation is far harder. If you said marshal the arguments for gun control laws. There are AIs that can do this, and they, they sort of make a plausible go at it. They can rehearse everything, read, and then it can kind of boil down, but it's still very messy. It just doesn't have that flow. It doesn't have that logical coherence. 
So professional writer says this stuff shouldn't worry professional writers. Well, I don't think this is going to disrupt people in mid-career, and I don't think it's close enough that it's really going to do that in time for the young people of the world. If you have a seven-year-old and you're trying to convince them to learn to write, I don't think you can give up on that task by saying, well, this is all going to be done by robots in the future. What AI systems do is, given an input, they give an output. Um, And they can get better and better at that, but creativity, idea generation, novel arguments, um, responding to the unexpected, these things are far harder. Lane, this has been a predictable pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. (laughs) Thank you, Jason. That's all for this 200th episode of The Intelligence, and I'd like to take this moment to thank the extraordinary team behind the show. Our editor, Marguerite Howell, senior producers Alice Fordham and Chris Impey, our producers Hannah Mourinho and William Warren, assistant producer Stevie Hertz, our sound engineer Daniel Lloyd Evans, and our audience producer Laura Clark. If you like the show, it's because of them, so give them a rating on Apple Podcasts. And as always, you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. We'll all see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.